Well, may, maybe the problem is as as more and more people come in, we have to make sure that, you know, because D&D's reach has gotten larger and larger, as you said, we need to make sure that people do feel welcome. Some of these books are like a hundred dollars, and you like you have if, if you have like ten of them, you're like, wow, I I spent a thousand dollars. Yeah, hopefully you didn't point. buy them all at once. Haven't we been talking about this for you know seventy years, and now suddenly we're here developing AI, and we're only now worrying about safeguards? It's like, man, I I don't know. And I think we all have to come in with our hearts in the right place. We're all just trying. Hopefully, most of us are just trying to have fun. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built nerd culture. And today, in celebration of my latest role-playing game addiction, Baldur's Gate 3, I have with me a special episode with one of the OG Pathfinder novelists to discuss our mutual hip, deep fascination with the greatest game to ever come to pen and paper. Today I'm joined by Howard Andrew Jones, a fantasy and Pathfinder novelist, a tabletop gamer, and a former professor of writing. We're going to talk about his new book, Lord of a Shattered Land, which is a must-read for all D&D fans. We'll also talk about the history and evolution of fantasy fiction from Tolkien to Sanderson, and we'll dive into the magic and appeal of tabletop RPGs like D&D and Pathfinder. And of course, for our stupid nerd question of the day, what is the best and worst adaptations of Dungeons & Dragons that Howard has ever seen? Spoiler alert, it's probably not going to be Pathfinder, but you will have to wait to find out. So grab your dice and join me for this epic episode of Culturescape with Mr. Howard Andrew Jones. And there we go. There's my brilliant, epic, dramatic opening. Uh, Howard, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I liked that a lot. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, you kindly sent a review copy in advance. And it, I haven't finished it quite yet, about halfway, but it's pretty good. I always enjoy a good uh, fantasy novel, especially ones that, you know, come from that you can see like the clear delineation line from Dungeons and Dragons from before that, you know, to the 80s. Uh, yeah, Spell and Sword stuff and then back into Tolkien. So uh, that's completely my wheelhouse. I've really enjoyed it. And you were one of the first Pathfinder book novels that I read. I was really into early Pathfinder. And so getting you on the show to talk about this. Baldur's Gate D and D. I'm very excited. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having. Let's start here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us give us the the origin story that is Howard Andrew Jones. How did you go from from young tabletop role player to book author? Well, I think like a lot of uh, GMs, I was a storyteller from a very early age, and it just seemed a natural transition. I always wanted to be a writer. Always, always, always. And so I was always scribbling stories down and uh, I began to send them out and collect rejection letters from a very young age. I think I was a teenager when I began to send stuff around. And, uh, you know, at some point, if you keep at it, eventually the rejection letters get nicer and then, you know, they're no longer <laughs> form letters. And then eventually maybe you get uh, published in some small place and then you get published in a bigger place. And, and that's kind of what happened with me. It's, it was more of a traditional arc. Um, career arc. And eventually I wrote a book that St. Martin's picked up. It was sort of a uh, cross between, oh, the Arabian Nights and Sherlock Holmes. And it was called The Desert of Souls. Um, but I had also been editing for a magazine called Black Gate. 
And one of my duties editing Blackgate was to handle the reviews columns. And I got to do the game reviews. So I was sent a whole bunch of really cool material to read, often in advance of its release. And some of that stuff came in from Pathfinder. And I always really liked the Pathfinder stuff. It was well-written. It was incredibly graphically interesting and well-presented. And I, um, after a while, I kind of struck up a friendship with Eric Mona and uh, James Sutter, the guys who were sending me the material. And it turned out that we both had a love of old pulp stuff and original sword and sorcery and adventure fiction. Uh, and so we began to talk about that in addition to when's the review going to arrive, when's the review going to go live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when they launched their novel line, I had just gotten the contract for the St. Martin's book, Desert of Souls. And they said, hey, we, we, you know, we like working with you on this stuff. And we saw that you just got a book contract. Would you be interested in checking it, you know, and joining our uh, Pathfinder line? We're going to launch a novel. Line. Like, yeah, that sounds great. And there that was. Um, and so I ended up writing two sets of two books for Pathfinder. And uh, I wrote two series for St. Martin's. And uh, the second one's kind of a love letter to Rogers Elasney's Chronicles Amber. And as I was finishing up uh, writing book three, I became obsessed with this new idea. And so I'd work on that during the day. And then the evenings, rather than relaxing, uh, I would relax by writing all the thumbnail ideas I kept thinking of for this new, I thought it was going to be like a single book. And then the more ideas I had, I thought, well, maybe I've got two books. But then I realized that I had many more than two books. Uh, book two is going to be coming out in October, and they signed me for five. I, so I ended up at Bain for the new series. That's that's my secret origin story. I'm also happily married, and the children of, uh, I have two adult children, uh, and I live on a little farm in Indiana. I think what your book does really well, and this is what I get from your writing, is you're very much aware of the culture and the literature of, of this kind of area of fantasy, you know, that D&D and stuff like it fits into. Um, Dragonlance is like another series that kind of is similar to this. I love that kind of thing because it, part of it is this um, zeitgeist. If you're a D&D person, if you like fantasy, you're tapping into all these archetypes, all these kinds of these types of stories. And you're able to twist them just enough to keep it interesting, but to carry you along. I love how so many people were inspired from Dungeons and Dragons being, you know, sometimes the players, but often the game masters. And how that kind of translate later on into a career of being a creative yourself. Uh, how, how was that transition? Because I imagine you said that you basically brute forced your way into a writing profession. That's not dissimilar to me. Uh, <laughs> what was it like? You know, you're a, you're a teenager probably or a young 20-something. You're getting these rejection letters. Like, till you got that rejection letter, do you think it was going to be a sure thing? Well, what was going through your your brain at first when you started the, on this path? <laughs> well, when you're a, when you're a teenager, you think it's definitely a sure thing. You you think you understand what you need to do, and so um, I'm a pretty happy and content and well settled person now. But I I got to admit I was I was pretty down about uh, my writing career um, for years and years and years because it took so long to break in, and I kept reading these stories of. Uh, people uh, breaking in and those were those were from decades earlier when there used to be more of a short story market and I thought that's how things were supposed to go but it doesn't go the same for anyone everyone's writing journey is is a different one so uh what can I say I was delighted when I finally got through the door and 
I I guess I've been, you know, mostly delighted ever since to be part of the industry. I wanted to be on the inside. And since I wasn't on the inside, I loved the industry so much, I began to volunteer uh, at a magazine and, and various other things. And that's really what helped open the door to make the further connections. No, it's it's good advice. I think if you are so, if you're interested in becoming a writer, being someone that professionals can rely upon, getting your your name to people that have influence is is a huge key thing, and that's probably true for almost any industry. That's not just writing; that's journalism. That's probably even contracting, construction work. Just g- getting people to know who you are, so they want to bring you in, because otherwise they just don't know you exist. Like you can't ask the person you don't know they exist to come work for you. It doesn't work that way. No, it it really doesn't. And and something I try to tell people is, uh, if you want to succeed, it's not just about creating the content. It's about creating it for the right person at the right time. But then if you're involved in the industry, if you show up and you do good work and you do it in a timely manner and you're, um, and you're not a jerk, that wins you so many battles and opens so many doors right there. Yeah, being and being relatively drama free, like being not being oh, yeah. the one that you, they always have to you know to put the 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 uh, the grease on the squeaky wheel, which I know some people think is advantage, but in my in my experience, it really isn't. So, what let's tell, talk a little bit about tabletop. So, how old were you when you got a tabletop? And I'm a, I you were probably since you were reading Zlazy, I'm imagining you're in probably in the '80s when you're getting into D and D. So. Were, were you into advanced D&D by that point, or were you just playing the original game? Because, I mean, you were close enough that you might have actually played the one that Gygax put out. So, uh, a friend of mine named Sean Conley had the advanced uh, Dungeons & Dragons player's guide and the monster manual and, of course, the player's manual, the player's guide. My God. I, I had a copy of it for years. I can't remember. I've forgotten. I can't remember the exact title. Anyway, um, everyone in junior high in the 70s was playing it, or at least not everyone. All of us geeks were playing it in the 70s, and I loved it. I loved the sheer scope of the imagination. Of course, I'd never seen anything like it, and it turned to be almost overnight from a uh, space opera fan into a fan of sword and sorcery. And fantasy in general, but particularly sword and sorcery, because I took, I read the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide. I read the entire thing, you know, like <laughs> like you do. And I read Appendix N, which of course is the famous listing of reference books and um, mostly fiction um, that uh, Gygax recommended. And I took my 10 speed uh, to the library and the used bookstore, and I unearthed uh, everything I could find, and the first things I found were uh, Libra's Swords Against Death and The Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny and several Michael Moorcock titles. And from that point on, my mind was, my imagination was blown, and I just wanted to read more and more of this stuff. My, my background isn't dissimilar to yours. I was probably like uh, nine or ten. And my uncles were, were trying to get into D&D. And I think what they started with was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which I'm going to be honest, not a big fan of. I hear the word Thacko and it just stresses me out. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you, you are right. There's something special about 
D&D and the really well-written guidebooks, they're, they're almost fabulous enough on their own. You never even really need to play the game because the lore is so interesting, the pictures, the, the ideas and concepts. They, they might have like a few paragraph short stories. I think I own about every entry in 3 and 3.5 Dungeons and Dragons. And every now and then, I just love to crack it open and, and read the entries. Um, Baldur's Gate 3 is out right now, and it has a lot of stuff about illithids. I was looking through one of the books about sax, reading about illithids. Like, wow, this is, you know, this is, this is so cool. This is so smart and interesting. And people have really played around it and thought really hard about it. And I am just such a fan of that tradition that that, D and D kind of inculcated into people, and I think if you consider the pop um, sword and sorcery novels from before D and D, and there were some to after, I feel like it really added this level. You know, it gave a high intelligence modifier to the entire genre. <laughs> well, it was certainly an infusion. I think it was an infusion of readers as well, right? Um, yes people who are exposed to this and they wanted more of this good stuff because they'd had so much fun playing it at the table. And I think it was certainly a fine training ground for many writers. Although, of course, there are some drawbacks. I think some people hear, um, you don't want to hear the roll of dice, I think, uh, in the fiction. Unless you're reading fiction is especially supposed to feel like a game world. I try not to have my independent stuff, my non-Pathfinder stuff. I don't want it to feel like Dungeons and Dragons magic, which has a very particular feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Roll, roll d twenty. See if you hit or miss. Roll, roll two d four. See how much damage. <laughs> Sorry, I can't cast that one again. I used up my my um my I used up my at I think if they call it now at rest, but I mean it would be like your you what they used to call dailies. So okay, uh, I I get that. And Zelazny is a great influence. He, he is a great book author. I don't know if lots of younger readers are familiar with him these days, but he's very influential. A ton of the authors I've had on this program. We had Jane Linskold, of course, who was his partner when he, when he yes. passed. But uh, lots of different. Um, David Weber is another person. Uh, we had Larry Correa. Oh, gobs and gobs of people were inspired by Zelazny, and they came from that fantasy cultural milieu, you know, that has D&D and it has... Um, no, oh, I just had a terrible brain fart. Oh, well, I was going to say, to has Tolkien has a lot of those influences that we can three see through today. However, oh, sure. this is a great point that you made in, uh, some, in a, a different podcast. I was doing research for the show and you said that the one of the downsides is that D and D becoming so popular is that when you are a writing professor and you're working with these magazines to edit the entries, the submissions. They would get a lot of really bad fantasy fiction. Like you said, like, please stop sending me more, you know, elf dwarf uh, mystery novels. I, I can't do these. Please stop. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, you dug pretty deep to find that comment. But yeah, it, it's absolutely true. Uh, when I was working with Blackgate and I edited a magazine called Tales from the Magician's, Magician's Skull, which is sword and sorcery. And sometimes I would get, um, it would be a Tolkien elf or a Tolkien dwarf um, in a trench coat investigating crimes. And that's, you know, that's fine for comic fantasy, but I wanted adventure fantasy and it, it doesn't really, doesn't really fit. And, and I began to get so many of them um, that I, I, I think I added into the guidelines, any dwarf or elf private eye stories would be immolated upon reception uh, because I just <laughs> didn't really want, I didn't really want to see them anymore. Uh, so 
in a way, game fiction kind of feeds on itself. Um, Dungeons and Dragons was inspired by Tolkien um, and Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock. And these guys drew from a well of imagination and were creating strange and wondrous new things. And sometimes it feels like uh, Dungeons and Dragons kind of um, stratified and codified this. And so some writers feel that elves can only be this way or any fantasy story must have elves or dwarves always behave like this or there must always be six different races and every fantasy story has to have them. Uh, and what I was trying to suggest with... Um, uh, further in those guidelines beyond the immolation of dwarf and elf private eye stories was that I wanted to see more original takes on um, fantasy situations that were adventure stories. Well, to, to speak on your point about bad fiction, you know, I read this every now and then. I pick up a book, oh, this sounds interesting. And they're like, this was someone's D&D campaign, like, it it just screams it. You don't you don't you can't quite prove it. Prove that that's the case. But you're like, this just it feels like you have like six different people's OCs, and then the way the ha haphazard the balance of events is kind of like barely strung together. You're like this 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 was someone's game night. <laughs> yeah yeah and, exactly. And, yeah, and that's okay. Like you do like one now and then, but so many of them fit that, or they're just all over like um the the Amazon ebooks. So many of them are like that in the fantasy genre. They're either like isekai stuff, so you you know like uh, you've been transported to another world, or there's stuff where like these are very thinly veiled pastiches of some D and D campaign, and there's just not much room in between. So okay, so let's let's talk about D and D. What what are your favorite aspects of D and D? Like what kind of class did you play? What were some of your favorite monsters? You know this newest game, Baldur's Gate three, which is a beautiful adaptation. You don't play games, you told me because you're like, if I do it, I'm gonna get stuck in, and then nothing else gets done. I have ADHD. I have that problem. I probably should take that advice. Um, I love like all the Illithid stuff. I love all the psionic stuff. I think that has always been so cool and a little bit underplayed. And it's really handled well in Baldur's Gate 3. What are your, some of your favorite aspects, you know, growing up and now from D&D? Well, keeping in mind, I almost always got stuck playing the DM. I almost never got to play. Um, and when I was playing, there weren't nearly as many classes. So, gosh. Usually I would play a fighter magic user on those rare instances when I did get to play. Uh, and then when I did get to play a little bit of uh, 3.5 and then later Pathfinder, I believe I played a bard. But most of the time, I was behind the screen. And my favorite monsters, well, since I, I lean more toward the sword and sorcery background, I don't have quite as many monsters. And I, when I do, they're terrifying. So uh, I guess I really like dragons. Um, but I'm really into creepy fae stuff. So... Uh, twisted spirits of the forest, um, diseased treants, um, things like that. You can get a lot of mileage out of a um, an owl bear. I think some people just say, "Oh, it's an owl bear; it attacks you," you know. But man, those things can be really creepy, especially at lower to mid levels when you, they come lurching out of the forest in the dark at you. That definitely speaks to your your experience. Why to be a short story? writer because that kind of that's kind of something that a short story writer would excel in is like taking a smaller 
a smaller enemy, a smaller character, and really fleshing it out and, and making it feel much more impactful than it actually is. And that's something you can really do better in like a novel format than you can like in a tabletop game. Because in a tabletop game, it's like you you, sp you spend two weeks putting together your magnum opus campaign, and then you play it. And then the 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 players they just get they just they just mess it all up. They do all the wrong things. They go the wrong place. Uh, you know, they they destroy your beautiful creation. You're like, no, you're supposed to go that way. Enter the dungeon. Like, no, we're we don't want to. <laughs> we're not going to. We're rebelling. Um, I've had that once or twice. That's why I don't, that's why I'm not usually someone's like, oh, I'll be, I'll be the DM. I am like, no, I've done that before. <laughs> I, I have enough pain in my life. Uh, the uh, last thing I was writing, um, and I guess it's been about a year and a half, two years because I've been very busy, um, working on the Hanavar sequence. Um, but I discovered this really wonderful hex crawl called Rune Wild. And I just backed it on Kickstarter because I'm always a sucker for these forest-based um, uh, fantasy fairy world campaigns. And it blew my socks off. It's, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the writer uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the publisher, but it's just rune wild. And I just found that it was magnificent. It's, it's a hex crawl, but there's stuff happening in every hex. There's uh, events that lead to other events there's dungeons built into it. There's quests built into it. There's so many fascinating NPCs. There's just uh, story hooks everywhere. So I was just running sort of a solo campaign for my wife, and, and she doesn't like the combat so much. She likes going interesting places and meeting interesting people and interesting creatures and interacting with them. So there would occasionally be combats, but it's more this campaign allowed me, you know, I tweaked a little bit. Um, so she was mostly dealing with diplomacy and solving strange mysteries and exploring the deep woods and encountering weird fae creatures. And we were having a blast. And I, I do look forward to getting back to the Rune Wild. And it's a 5e product. Um, but, you know, 5e is pretty easy to uh, work with any system. And I was kind of using a, a simpler uh, OSR system to run, to run it. Do you like 5e? I know a lot of people who are more hardcore tabletop players or who go farther back, they have a problem. Mixed feelings on 4, some people love it, some people hate it, but 5e, some people feel like it it leaned a bit more towards the casuals and the normies. What were your, what are your feelings on it? Because that actually does play into what's happened with Pathfinder, because when you wrote Pathfinder, it was a D&D &D property, it no longer is, and I'm sure that will fascinate uh, my listeners, but what do, you, what do you think about 5e? You like it? You don't like it? Well, you know what? I uh, never explored it very fully. I So I played Pathfinder for many years, and I decided after a while, like, I want to experiment with really simple systems, really dialed back. And I like the looks of 5e, but it was already, it, it was doing things that Castles and Crusades was already uh, doing a lot of. And so I'd been using Castles and Crusades, and when 5e came out, I didn't see much reason to switch. As a matter of fact, even though I quite like Castles and Crusades, I began to use even more stripped-down systems like uh, Beyond the Wall. Uh, and um, uh, by this by this axe, I hack. Uh, and uh, some of the other OSR things, it's, it's mostly just... Um, Rulings, not rules, I think is one of the uh, one of the mantras. And 
I think a lot of people think if you're OSR, you're about killing characters, and and that's simplistic. <laughs> I just, I'm not about killing the characters. You know, I'm I'm running a solo campaign for my wife, so she literally probably is not going to have this character die. It's more about having creating a story together. But I like the uh, the OSR because I almost never have to crack open a book except to check monster stats. I never have to go look up a rule or see how far the spell can go. If she's throwing a spell, she can look it up. I just want to be there creating the story. So uh, I'm afraid I don't have really strong feelings about uh, 5e one way or the other because of the way I've been gaming for the last six or seven years. Do you have strong feelings, though, with what went down just the end of last year, start of this oh, yeah. one, with, with Wizards of the Coast? Oh, yeah, I have very strong feelings. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I remain friends with the, uh, uh, with the Pathfinder folks. As a matter of fact, I uh, just had dinner with um, Eric Mona at Gen Con, and um, I got to tell him in person that uh, how, how pleased I was with the way Paizo handled all of that. <laughs> I'll, I'll say kerfluffle, uh, yes. that incredible mess. They handle it with incredible dignity and insight and cleverness. Um, and so did a whole bunch of other people like the Cobalt folks. And, and I'm afraid I didn't follow it as closely. Um, but from what I saw, it was a big mess. And I'm really disappointed in the, um, the people running Wizards of the Coast. I know, I know, I know that the adventure designers and most of the role-playing people had nothing to do with those terrible choices from up top, so I don't blame them. I, I, yeah, I was just, I was just flabbergasted because I, when I, this is the same for you, I bet it was only in the sit like last five or six years that all of a sudden, if I told a, a, a attractive gal or guy, you know, down at down at Walmart, whatever. And like, oh, I, I'm playing DD. Do you want to come play in DD? Until that point, about five or six years ago, like you were, you were just slightly above the people who evangelize at door to door, you know. And I'm LDS, I'm a Mormon, so I'm very familiar with that. It was like you were just barely, you were just barely scurrying above it. When I, mean, I was serving as a missionary for my church, sometimes you would go to houses. It, it, this happened multiple times. You could see through the window. People are there. You knock on the door. You know, knock, knock, knock. You know, or you're trying to, and then everyone hides, like grown adults. They're <laughs> <laughs> just like, you don't even know how to react to it. You're like, I don't, what do I even do here? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how it felt like. It was like, what kind of weirdo would play a, a, a pen and paper RPG? That's so weird. And then all of a sudden I was attending um, a singles activity. And it was it was some some gals that you would never in a million years before guess that they would like be in the Dungeons Dragons, but they now were, and that was largely because of what they had been doing with Five E, and then Critical Role. Somehow, miraculously, Wizards of the Coast had broke the formula. They figured out what it took to get that to go into the mainstream, and, and in spite of that victory, you know, in spite of the gaping jaws of victory, you know, they 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 pulled it out. And they decide they were just going to make their lives so much worse. But I don't know what else you do. It was such a power play where they're basically where where if, if you according to how you read it, it could have said now now and all future properties somewhat based on our intellectual property or these rights, the OSR, which was basically the, the basic skeleton fundamental system that you could use for any tabletop. And you then you could pick and choose elements from D&D or take your book and make it so you could slot into a D&D campaign. Very clever idea, by the way. 
Um, and they were saying, well, actually, if we just decide we want to own that and we want all your money, we get your money. And that was like the dumbest, that was like the dumbest decision I think I've seen in a very long time. But it blew up in their face. Like, oh, I know all that goodwill they built up and they just, oh, they just shot themselves in the foot and they took so long to respond. They took so long to address it. They just, it's just corporate greed. It, it was dreadful. And I'm glad they got taken down a peg. I'm glad they got taken down several pegs. Um, yeah. Is is it a good thing you think though for the for the future of pen and paper for people like Pathfinder because now they like they they have more control to sail their own course. They're not stuck with whatever random mandate Wizards of the Coast wants to go with this week. Oh, I think it's I think it's a very good thing in general. And here's the here's the interesting bit, of course, is that the general public doesn't even know the, the a vast number of D and D players out there probably aren't even aware of what went down, but it's going to protect a whole lot of creators, um, both existing RPG creators and those in the future. They're no longer going to have to. They're not going to have to bow down to any crazy dictates about the license anymore or ever again because of the brave stand made by uh, these people who very wisely and intelligently and cleverly um, objected. No, Paisa was a big leader in that. They're the writers of Pathfinder and they were really the first ones that really to, to you know, Dragonlance to some degree too and then some later others later. They were the first big ones that are able to like create their own little universe from Dungeons and Dragons, which I probably in the mind of a of a Hasbro official and they own Wizards of the Coast probably was like a tremendous mistake. But the sense of growing the player base, it was a wonderful decision. I mean, it, it really it really grew the property and getting people into it. But you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it like, oh, let's welcome everyone and then say, oh, we're gonna. Actually, we'll, we'll, you, we we uh, we only want the ones that come with lots of money. All of, all of you poor people have to stay out. Go away. We, we don't need, want to. We need more money. Give us all the monies. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh goodness gracious, it's fascinating. I I you know some of the stuff with a D and D is it's so crazy. It is a really awesome hobby because it really does make you think. It's very intellectual and social. Um, I think it's really good for people who are more antisocial, who are kind of like, you know, B types like myself. It's like this gives you opportunity to engage with other people in a fun yet sometimes meaningful way. And in a good campaign, the hours can just, you know, whiz by, go go really fast. You know, it's funny because I was talking with someone, they were saying, oh, it takes so long to do this and this for Dungeons and Dragons. I was like, I've, I've done things where I've spent a weekend and we never even got to the campaign and just people were just making their characters you know they're just writing character sheets <laughs> i think it was fine it was fun we we all enjoyed it that's just kind of how the game goes do you have a favorite DD memory because i do want to go back a little bit to, to paizo and what wizards is doing but i you know i don't want it to just be so negative i also want this conversation to be positive because it really is a positive wonderful thing despite all the problems it has like what what is your favorite DD memory do you have a certain campaign or was there a moment you're like, oh, this is this is so magical. Yeah, my God, there's there's so many of them. Um, so I was running a uh, I was running a campaign. God, I don't even I don't even know where to start. So a lot of my favorite moments I I stole and used in my later fiction, as writers will do. Um, 
as a matter of fact, the, the opening sequence of Lord of the Shattered Land began long ago in college as, um, as an adventure I created for the, I think it was the third episode of a campaign where the characters have to go and seek uh, the aid of a dragon, not knowing when they get there, that the dragon has no memory of the pact as they think uh, there was a pact forged between their people and the dragon. And when they get there, they get a completely different set of um, of instructions forced upon them. And so, I mean, I riffed on that. It's not the same story anymore. It's been 25 years. But yeah, that's a favorite memory. Um, I don't know how much detail do you want me to go into? It's as much or as little as you want to go. Like in my head, I can remember... Oh, um, I must have been 11 or 12. I'm playing with my uncle Joseph and he, he was the one he, he and my, him and my other, uh, maternal uncle Daniel, they would buy the books and they would, they would kind of bring us over us youngsters over to play with them. That's how I got started into it. I remember one time they had bought the, the, now it's a banned book by wizards and they, they are like, how did we ever do this? What terrible people we are. But, um, the Oriental Adventures for 3.0 and 3.5, which really fascinating interesting book um and, and he just you know we just sat down with me for a couple of days and this is when my my younger sister was in the hospital with cancer so this is a very stressful time for my family and he he just for a few days we just played dnd it was just me and him basically just the two of us i think the campaign i had like one guy was a samurai and his, his little buddy was a halfling rogue and it was just like it was just such a fun positive thing i can i can remember doing that with him it was so engaging um and fun i remember you know taking down i must have it must have been like uh you said something like an owlbear it was like something like that it was like a small it was a small kind of mob character but it was just tough enough at the at the at the lower levels that felt like wow this is a this is a really an achievement and he, I, I guarantee he was flipping those some of those dice rolls for me but uh, it's a good memory it's a good memory i you know i like you i have a lot of positive feelings about um, this game and this kind of experience that it can endear. It's it's really, it's pretty unique. I don't know, you know, there wasn't really anything kind of like it, you know, before D&D existed, not, not any sense of the thing, except maybe the war games that D&D kind of sort of based off, but they, did, they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't inspire the same kind of camaraderie necessarily. A lot of those war well, games right. are actually So most of the war games, you're not really creating, um, uh, personalities you're moving pieces around and i actually i actually love tactical and strategic war games if i were to turn the camera around i could show you a big wall of them um that i also have been too busy to play but love um yeah i think the idea that you're creating a character with abilities and maybe a backstory uh and you and the other players and the game master are sitting down and creating a story together there's something incredibly compelling about that. Humans are fascinated with stories anyway. We've been probably been doing it uh, since we were very primitive around the campfire, telling stories together. And the idea that we can all sit down and tell one together, it's so empowering and, and it just fires the imagination and it, it builds bonds between the people who are playing. I mean, as long as they're not being jerks and <laughs> stumbling over <laughs> each other, right? Yes. So uh, it's good stuff. It is. It is. It really is wonderful. I think what ba- one of the major um, innovations Gaiax hit upon is like unlike war games, where it's pretty much, um, it's pretty. It's like PvP. You know, it's very much uh, competition. 
D&D, the trick in D&D was it is, it's sometimes a competition, but most of the time it's cooperative. And so it, it's a much, it, it has a lot of similar rules. It has the same kind, of, same kind of energy playing the games, min-maxing, figuring out strategy. That's all there if you want it. But it took it and made it more a cooperative effort than anyone could get into. And honestly, I mean, I know some of, you know, it kind of looks expensive, but the investment to getting into tabletop really isn't that bad compared to a lot of hobbies. No, it's it's really not. It's really not. What really frustrates me, though, like you and I, obviously, we have we we revere the material. We we're we're inspired by the people who put this together, but the people who actually own Dungeons and Dragons, they don't seem to necessarily carry the same feelings. For example, the Gygax estate, Gary Gygax, he he eventually sort of lost, sort of sold off his company, and eventually made its way over to Wizards of the Coast, who own it, who Hasbro owns now. But like the by his son, another Gygax, he's like tried to bring back some of these other properties that his dad worked on, and he he, he every time Wizards of the Coast Hasbro come with their lawyers and they you know they smash it to bits, and it doesn't even it doesn't even matter if it was something they owned or they had property over it, they they would just say no, only we get to have this thing, only we get to do this, and they've been kind of like that with the property. It's so weird because it's it's so positive and it's so community building. They also kind of want to be like the corporate overlords, you know, it's our way or the highway. And it's so confusing because like you have like, you'd be like, they come out with a book and you play with your friends. And then you, two years later, you learn actually that book was problematic. We never should have published it. Uh, we don't know uh, what we were thinking. Uh, we, we brought on some diversity hires. They told us like, how could you do this? This is terrible. And I know some of you are saying, well, works really aren't standings for black people, but actually we believe that now. I don't know why. But we do, and uh, all of you should feel bad. And it's like, and me as a player, I'm like, I'm getting very mixed messaging here, guys. Like, uh, like what uh, is it you want from me? Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know where to. It's hard to know where to turn or where the ground is sometimes. Uh, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> It I'm not be- trying to get you. I don't want to get you in trouble. You're like, oh, I said this one thing on this small podcast, and now they're not answering my emails. I don't. I mean, <laughs> no, terrible. no. I so since I've been sort of using, um, I I don't usually use uh, other people's adventures. Rune Wild is is like one of the rare exceptions. I I purchased it and I was so impressed. I just had to run it. Usually, I make up my own stuff, and usually, I'm not that interested in um in other. Uh, Usually, my wife plays an elf or a human, and, and that's about the only races we encounter. And um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess in that small circle of players, and I, you know, before that we had three or four, but we usually played humans or elves, and um, occasionally there'd be a friendly half work. I, I, I don't know. I guess I never thought about it, but maybe I'm coming from a privileged position as a, um, as a, as a very white dude, obviously. Uh, from uh, from the middle class, and uh, maybe maybe we do need to think about these things. On the other hand, if I'm just playing with other people from, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I look, I I'm like you. I come from the Midwest. I, I have a religious background, so even if I think maybe someone's being completely ridiculous, I usually trust try to hear them out. That kind of makes me a bit of a squish on these things sometimes. It just felt like my experiences with D and D, and this isn't the only that this has happened with several nerd things um, in the last five, ten years. 
that before weren't very popular people outside of the nerd community of whatever the thing is. And now they have all these new people coming in. And it's like, it's like I was part of this and I knew the people in it. And this is what I used to love about conventions. Um, I was, I used to do conventional anime conventions. Um, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, just gigantic Who fans. I love talking to people about Who stuff and going to Who things and writing about Who and reading Who on forums, etc. And I just don't do any of that anymore because something changed where it was like, up to that point, anyone could get involved. And really the only thing mattered was your engagement and like what you could add to it or, you know, you just enjoyed it. And it was like, never politics came up, never religion, never, you know, people could come and they weren't wearing deodorant. That was like a common thing. And very, very seldom did you ever hear someone putting someone else down. In fact, it was very, it was in fact, in, in, for the modern term, it was very inclusive. And the sense is like, here are all these people, some might be outcasts, some might be not, but we're all, we're all really into this thing. So let's be friends to each other, even though we might never have met. And I, that, that was so special. Well, maybe, maybe the problem is as, as more and more people come in, we have to make sure that, you know, because D&D's reach has gotten larger and larger, as you said, we need to make sure that people do feel welcome. And sometimes there's uh, uncomfortable adjustments when we realize that something, you know, the, <laughs> the whole white man, the burden crap, the colonialists didn't think that that, that was bad. But you look back, it's like, oh, my God, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's terrible. And maybe there's some stuff that we're blind to because we're so used to seeing it. And, you know, sometimes there's overcorrections in some ways. And it's hard to know until the dust settles. But I think I think we need to make sure that we're welcoming to, to newcomers um, from different backgrounds than our own uh, so that we don't accidentally end up sounding um, as bad as uh, some, <laughs> some of the older adventure fiction did. On the other hand... Um, Sometimes it's possible to to take the correction so far, and it's it's hard to know what to do. As long as we do it with our hearts in the right place, I think if we misstep, people will understand um, that we're just trying to, you know what I mean. And I think we all have to come in with our hearts in the right place. We're all just trying. Hopefully, most of us are just trying to have fun, and I think that's where we that's where we need to come with it, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. You know, I'm not someone that argues for gatekeeping very often because I feel like that's not necessarily necessarily positive i think the issue is like when you have these big things and they're new people coming in and maybe they don't have the best intentions or they feel that they have to have dramatic changes because they don't necessarily understand it you know it's like like i'm trying to say like these things were generally very welcoming like the, the like some of these things might have had like a, a previous problematic history i mean some people do this sometimes like gygax said this about this or had this bad feeling about that and I was like, okay, that's fine, but how does that apply, you know, 30, 40 years later to now? I'm not I'm not against like going through that, but I think some people come in with with bad faith. I think Wizards of the Coast, some of these companies, I don't know if they feel like this is a good way to get a political edge to help like get more business. I'm not totally certain. But for me, it feels like it feels like a misunderstanding because these properties were always very open. They were always very welcoming. And, and there's an assumption there that the people who were already there weren't. The assumption is that the people who were there were there because that that's who was into it. The assumption is the only people who were there was because everyone else was not allowed, which is just certainly not the case. When I was right. in high school, I had Dungeons and Dragons night with my friends. If, if a girl, any kind of girl whatsoever had decided to come that night, it would have been like best D&D &D night ever. 
<laughs> that, that's how it was then. It, it, it's just funny to me now how people look at these things. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, well, uh, we'll we'll move on. I, that, that's just me. Um, uh, I do you uh, do you ever have you seen Jim Gaffigan, the comedian? No, he's a, no, he's a favorite of mine. He has a good line in one of his early stand-ups where he says, you know, uh, and this is what they say in my family, it's a whale issue. And he talks about, you know, he says like, you never hear anyone complain about the whales. You know, you never go, you never go over to your father-in-law's house. There's like stupid whales, you know, they're <laughs> leeching off the government. You know, no one ever complains about whales. Uh, that's kind of, this is kind of my, my whales thing. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I've been here. Like I, I know these people, they're generally good. Like you, you get people who are like too hopped up on Mountain Dew or whatever, but it, which is, I guess, just wasn't the thing. I, I don't know what else to tell you. No, uh, no. Um, let's, this is kind of a thing. I'd like to do a, a stupid nerd question. This kind of what I'm trying to do. So something that's more pop culture aspect. So, you know, draw people in who might not be as familiar with the, the material. Since you have been following tabletop for a while, this is a good question to ask. What is the best and worst adaptation of Dungeons & Dragons? And you could expand this out, I guess, to tabletop in general, if you want, that you have ever seen, watched, read. Uh, and think about more, more, more things like pop culture entertainment, probably more movies, television games, less books, but I'll let you decide. I'll go first so I can give you some time to think. Okay, okay sure. I'm going I'm to go with a Dark Horse entry. I think I have I have an Adventure Time toy vector somewhere, I think. The the yellow dog guy, that's Jake. I think Adventure Time, this is like 2010, the show comes out, the first two seasons or so, when it was had that original creator, Pendleton Ward. And you, you have, I think you have kids, right? Oh, yes. So they probably have seen Adventure Time. Okay. That was heavily D&D inspired, and that was before D&D had really broken to like the big mainstream. I thought the way that they had handled with that show, they they handled these concepts and they acted as if everyone knew what this was. And it was just hilarious. It was really it was just hilarious and fun and still welcoming and stupid all the same time. And I loved it. And that that's 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 stuck to me the very to this very day. Worst D adaptation I have ever witnessed. D D used to come out with well that we could talk about that awful it's either ninety eight or two thousand movie. That's too easy. Um, I'm going to go with a worse D&D adaptation. I'm going to go with D for a while. Wizard of the Coast is releasing these awful straight to DVD, like make your own adventure DVDs. And oh, those are gosh awful. That was a terrible idea. That was just, that was something they should have workshopped a little bit more before they committed to, you know, to manufacturing 100,000 DVDs or whatever their their sales order was because they were just so, so terrible. And I, I, I asked people about this, anyone else remembers them? And apparently, I, maybe this is like a Berenstein Bears thing because I'm like the only person that remembers that they made this and maybe everyone else just pretends they didn't. But those are my picks for best, best D&D adaptation, worst D&D adaptation. What are, you, what, what are you going to go for? You know, I, I hate to say this, but I'm probably going to go with worst would be the um, the Gygax novels. They're just, <laughs> they, <laughs> they're, they're pretty dreadful. And I, I hate to say that because he's, we wouldn't have this without his involvement. And of course, Dave Arneson as well, and a whole bunch of other people who probably don't get as much credit. But yeah, I, I really hate to say that, but I never, there he wasn't a novelist, right? And I think my favorite things would probably be um, 
It's interesting that you mentioned Adventure Time. I hadn't thought of that in the the D and D influence, but you're absolutely right. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with uh, books, and I'll say that the uh, that the Forgotten Realms novels and the Pathfinder novels, uh, at their best, that is some great game fiction. And I that's another thing I'm disappointed at uh, Hasbro for because they killed that line. And some of those books were actually doing quite well, thank you. They just weren't doing as well as other Hasbro Hasbro products, and so they killed the line. And the only thing that exists now is uh, what Drist. We still have Drist novels. Yes, uh, somehow, by somehow. some miracle, they let that one scoot through. Well, because it was making a whole lot of money, but we don't have some others, including some really some really fine writers who are doing some really great work. And there's a bunch of people who are still irritated about that. But Hasbro, the corporate overlords decided that they didn't want to do that anymore. Oh, and I'm sorry, I'm dumping on Hasbro again. We're going to keep this paused if I apologize. It's easy to do. It's really easy to do, I think. <laughs> it's just like one of those giant conglomerates, just like as often as they do something right, they're going to probably do something wrong because it's right. like too many cooks in the kitchen. I That's why I usually assume. I just like it's too many people making decisions. and So they're saying all kinds of weird mixed messaging. It's like, at one hand, they'll like put out some some book, and it's like, whoa, this is super cool and Lovecraftian and dark and interesting. And then the next book will be, here's how to make, uh, here's how to do your D and D coffee shop tabletop role playing session, which is a thing that came out in like the last two years, and I've played it, and my gosh, that is one of the worst things I think I've ever done in my life. Goodness gracious, that was. Maybe I should do well that because it's not adaptation though. That's them. Okay, that's so you them. can't. That's them. That's that you can't. You can't blame someone else for that. That was their. That was their decision. You, you, wow. you know, there's no. there's an awful lot of terrible adventures out there, and what I hate is an adventure that's really poorly organized, and that you almost have to study it in depth and read it like four or five times before you can run it. And there there are some uh, game designers who run it so it can actually be played as opposed to I'm studying for an exam before I run this adventure. And so I, I dislike that a lot. I'm not going to name any particular names or products, um, but that that drives me crazy. Uh, and I, I do love one that you can run uh, either right away or just with a little bit of, of reference. Um, there's some stuff that uh, Gavin Norman uh, puts out, the guy behind uh, Dolmanwood. Uh, and the way his adventure design, I, I, I quite like. Uh, you can you can kind of at a glance sort of tell what's going to happen and what you need to do uh, with minimal prep. And I, I like minimal prep. Like I said, anymore, I'm a rules like guy. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time referencing charts and stopping the story. I want to keep the story going. Yeah, that's kind of where Advanced Dungeons Dragons went wrong. Which, by the way, if you can get copies of the old Advanced Dungeons Dragons. They're wonderful breeds. Like they really, they think out the lore and these concepts to the to the nth degree. Like they get down to the cellular level. Like how does a beard, how does a dwarf's beard grow? Like on a biological scale, <laughs> how would that work? <laughs> the problem is, it's like it's too like you, you're too. It's like too microscopic, man. Yeah, like, I don't goodness care. gracious. Yeah. I don't you know, care. it's so it takes so long to work through anything in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Goodness. I don't remember the I don't I don't remember the beard growing thing. Maybe that was in the later supplements. Yeah, we I owned a copy because they would do they had they they love the paperbacks still when they're doing advanced news. This is like early nineties problem. They were putting those out, maybe late eighties. Huh. 
so they were like mostly like that red color and they were like that paper, almost like that oh god yeah i do i do remember yeah. that yeah see i just had like i just had like the three main books and i think i picked up fiend folio and, and that was it i didn't even pick up the monster manual too so i i was pretty old school and i uh, kept yeah i I love the materials. Like, wow, I do want to learn about dwarf acrobat tiger tamers or whatever. <laughs> I was sitting there. I'm like, this is great. Well, but, some uh, of that stuff was cool and some of it felt like a, a cash grab, right? Yeah. yeah let's, let's keep pumping out supplements. I think uh, by, I don't know I mean, how I was, any of this can actually be used in a game, but it sounds cool. It's it's interesting. By that point, I was uh, looking at some other systems. I mean, I was playing Star Trek, the role-playing game, and some Traveler and some Talus Lanta. Twilight 2000, uh, Top Secret SI, where you it was basically a pulp campaign, uh, you know, 30s two-fisted action adventure. I mean, uh, Call of Cthulhu, Chill, uh, the Amber Diceless system. Yeah, I played all kinds of stuff. So it wasn't like I was only ever playing D&D, but it's one that I always came back to. And of course, I tried other fantasy systems as well. Did you do th- like some of the darker stuff? And they've had some of the, the darker role-playing games are alternative deity actually the ones that have done best in modern adaptations especially in video games so things like vampire the masquerade for example Shadowrun is another one that they've done fantastic adaptations of those stories um in fact they were kind of the predecessors to what we're getting right now with like boulder skate 3 they, they were they were really smart and be able to take that material and somehow adapt it to a more traditional uh game format which has been really, really interesting to me because those used to be not Shadowrun, but definitely Vampire the Masquerade. You know, especially if you're thinking about the 80s and you have the Satanic Panics, it was like the one game you don't want to be caught playing properly during that time period. It's like a game like Vampire the Masquerade. But here I went through the 90s and I played some Vampire the Masquerade and I did do some Shadowrun, but of course, eh, you couldn't afford every system, especially when you're a college kid or yeah. you've just graduated. And so a lot of what we were playing was dependent. So, for instance, I, I don't think I ever owned Shadowrun. One of my friends did. And so we played it a few times. and It was kind of cool. Uh, but I don't have tremendous experience with it. Uh, another bunch of my friends owned uh, Vampire. And I think we eventually got like the basic book because we played it quite a lot. Um, but not exclusively. We were also doing some other things. Um yeah, the, the storytelling system was really interesting, and I remember enjoying it. Um, man, yeah, I, I, I've it's been decades. I, I played pretty regularly from about junior high until now, so I've tried a lot of systems, and yet there's still a number that I've never played, even some even some of the really well known ones. So, yeah, there's a lot. There is a lot, and each of them have their own little niche audience, and right you know, they have a they have a history and a culture about them it's fascinating stuff i bet that micro uh niche nerd cultures are, are really interesting but if that's something you, if you're a, a sociologist or someone i'm not using the right term at all there uh if you were someone that was interested in studying human behavior and uh communities i'm sure that would be an interesting topic for someone to do I, I think we live in like a golden age of tabletop stuff. I think I wonder how much that is the internet because it, like you said, getting the money together for these books used to be hard. And now basically most people I know, they own a few books and then they kind of borrow. Don't get me YouTube. They borrow ah. some other people's, they the, um some other people's PDFs from sites that may or may not be about pirates. Oh, see, now now, now yeah. that makes me sad because it's not as though the people who write the books are 
make yeah. a whole lot of money. You know, that that really does make me yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. But a part of the thing is, is like Wizards is finally catching on. I think this is this is my theory why they decided to push on this is because they finally caught on to the idea that people like digital books and like to be able to access the information and because it makes the mechanics game through the game, though nothing quite replaces the feel of a dice roll. Yeah, even even the even the uh, the um, risk. I'm not using the right words at all today. My apologies. Even the the dice simulators, the the risk simulators. You know, it's just yeah. not quite the same thing. No, it's really not that sense. So you know, you wanted role playing memory earlier. I was talking about top secret SI. I mean, nothing's ever going to replace that moment where my character was up against it, and um, you know the the air. We were on a zeppelin that was on fire, and there there was a a uh, big henchman rushing at us and my character has uh has two pistols and he has to fire three snapshots and in that system um the lower you roll the better and i hit what was it three shots and i had to take down this guy before the zeppelin blew up right uh, uh-huh. it was the size of that dude from raiders of the lost ark uh, uh in the mechanic in front of the pancake plane right so i rolled what was it uh an ot four an ot one and an ot ot so, I mean, I took him down and saved the day. And the, just watching those dice hit the table uh, and, and having that moment, you know, I'm never going to forget the excitement. And everyone cheered, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's awesome. I don't. Like, you're so close to being wiped out. And just by the skin of your teeth, just, just by lady luck, did you, did you pass through your trial? No, I love right. that kind of stuff. That's that's those are those moments are magical. I mean, they almost make all of it worth it. Right. But my point is this: like Wizards of the Coast trying to catch up to the digital age, basically, and understand what people want now. And so, from what I can tell, is they don't because they're cutting back on books now. They said they want to cut back on the adaptations. Though I don't know how that applies because Baldur's Gate is selling like, um, like uh, water in the de- in the Sahara. I mean, it's selling <laughs> goodness gracious so many copies. Um, but they kind of want to move D&D to be an app, basically. They have a lot of marketing executives from Hasbro and people have come from different companies and come in and are like, we want to take D&D and basically turn to an app. And D&D for being this platform that you know you all gather to go to, you put on your phones, and that's what you use. Do you think that would take away something from the experience of, of pen and paper? You know, pen and paper and books and sheets and sometimes little figurines that are a bit too expensive. And so you like borrow like little army soldiers from the dollar store or, you know, like, here's a rock. The well, half gets to be a rock. See, I would think so, but again, we're coming because of my perspective. I see um, my son is 27, and his role-playing group, um, they really don't sit down with character sheets the way we used to. They generate everything uh, online. Uh, and so maybe for the, maybe for this generation coming up behind us, it's not going to feel weird. Maybe it'll feel completely normal. Maybe they're Maybe they're going to be perfectly fine with the dice apps, and uh, you know, uh, not maybe for them it'll be exciting when the dice app hits the 04 and the 00 and the 01 in a row. Um, and maybe, maybe my biased perspective because of my ex- years of years of doing it this way, I can't see the benefit of doing it that way. To me, I don't like it. I don't like always being glued to the computer and glued to the screen. As a matter of fact, when I'm writing, I do all of my rough drafts, uh, usually in longhand, in a notebook. Oh, wow. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of people think that's weird. That but, is, that is, un- well, these days, yeah, that's pretty unique. But I don't like staring at the screen. I'm going to be staring at the screen a whole lot of the time while I'm typing it in and while I'm revising it and while I'm reading it out loud to, to see how it sounds over and over. 
So yeah, I like to get away from the computer. And maybe our society is getting more and more used to the idea of always staring at a glowing screen. And <laughs> that's another reason I like tactical war games uh, on a board rather than on the screen. I like to get away. I like to manipulate the pieces with my hands and, and stare, at, uh, stare at a big map that might take up a huge table and, and figure out which way which way the tanks are going to come in, you know, and, and where's the ridge line. And you can't, you can't do that in the same way on a screen. Yeah, it could be. It could be just so you know. I have a bit of a, a fuddy duddy. That's such a, that's such a midwestern term. Um, yeah, that could be. That could be fair. Uh, I you know, do I feel like my character sheet is less relatable if I use? Um, and there's so many wonderful sites that will help you put together a character. Part of me is like you know, one of the innovations. It's one of these low key things in Baldur's Gate Three that that um, the company Larian Studios put an enormous amount of time trying to get perfect. And it's really a really clever innovation. I'm trying to think of the name for the system. Basically, they they figure out a risk a risk system that emulates dice rolls, but to a point. So they they and you can look it up, guys. If you have the game, if you go into the options settings and the gameplay, there will be a part about adjusting dice rolls. And basically, the idea is to make sure that you don't get a bunch of failures in a row. You know, you, sometimes you just get you know this is stochasticity at play. Sometimes you're like, I get a five, I get a four, I get an eight. I keep failing over and over again. So to prevent some of that happening, the, the, there are times that the algorithm adjusts the role just enough so that you feel like you're you're getting more engagement in the gameplay. And it's a really interesting innovation, but then it also makes like someone that's like a, a diehard and someone that's trying to do it the right way, also very Midwestern. Um, it's like, oh, you know, how could how could they do this? How could they mess with something so beautiful? But I'm gonna be honest, when I was playing Baldur's Gate yesterday. And I, I wasn't dealing with the problem of, you know, endless failure roles. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm okay with this. So maybe you're right. Maybe people will just, will just, uh, will adjust and no one will own any books and you'll just be some kind of weirdo that, that has those old, you know, some of these books are like a hundred dollars and you like, you have, if, if you have like 10 of them, you're like, wow, I, I spent a thousand dollars. Yeah. Hopefully you didn't point. buy them all at once. You know, hopefully you spread that out over several years. No, that's interesting. You were talking about the the modifying. One of the house rules I always uh, employ when I'm running D and D is I, I like a more heroic game, and y you don't see Conan fumble his sword when you're reading a story. You don't see Fafnir the Great Mouser fumbling. I mean, occasionally there'll be a mistake and they'll slip or something. But so I know a lot of people roll to confirm a critical. I roll to confirm a fumble. So if there's a terrible fumble, I I roll again. To see if it's if it's truly terrible, if it's if they actually fumble exactly the same number again, it's like okay, then I got to come up with something terrible that's happened. Otherwise, it's just a miss. You know, they've failed um, because it it just at some point we're trying to tell these heroic stories and stupid stuff sometimes would happen. Like, man, this does not feel like a heroic adventure story. But yes. you know, a lot of people run with uh, different house rules depending on the feel they want in their tales. Definitely. That was kind of one of the mistakes Wizards made, I think, here. They failed to understand that D&D is less a game in some ways and more an ecosystem. That they had, they had grown something really special. And, it, you know, ecosystems, living things, they're as easy to kill as they are to feed. You have oh. to be very careful not to mess with it too much or things okay. will go wrong. Yeah. And yeah, I think that yeah. was the fundamental mistake they made. I was like, 
you know, and the, the, the one other, they had a previous executive and CEO, and this is, they, I'm trying to remember the site that maybe it was Bleeding Cool. They interviewed him and he's like, you, you, what wisdom, what Hasbro doesn't understand is what they're complaining about. They have all these people who are using D&D basically for free with their rule set is that that was what we wanted. We were trying yeah. to grow the player base and that was how we invited all these people in. You know, we invited Paizo, please come over here, make something with our game. And w what we thought was is uh, something that was a total good back in 2000. You guys are feeling like, no, look at all that money they're taking off the table. That should be our money. <laughs> you want all the monies. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, jib the gab about D&D. &D. It it's a fun topic. You know, people are into it. They really can can discuss it because it's really, it's really fun and impactful and engaging in a way that a lot of other fun thing, nerd things to do aren't. It kind of incorporates everything that makes being a nerd great. You know, you got literature, you got concepts, you got mechanics, everything that you know that 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 um, you see that satisfied feeling. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. What about you being a writer? Has being a writer been something that's what you know? Writing is an interesting place itself too. The dynamics of the business are changing quite a bit. Um, books less so probably than like straight up news writing but even in in the world of books with ai chat gbt now on the head we've had of course innovations that amazon brought on with ebooks so much is changing it feels like everything that used to be solved is now quicksand how do you feel as a writer you've been on this path a while and now you're a success you're writing the kinds of books you always wanted to write you were doing the kinds of stories you always hoped to younger you reading the rogers elasney novels is probably so proud of uh, today's Howard Andrew Jones. What are you, what are your feelings now on, on, you know, now that you are a big success? On where the industry's going or and where how the industry, industry is, what do you think of your career? What do you think the future of, of being a writer in all this mess is going to be? No, no, it's so hard to determine. I look, I've seen some stuff written by chat GBT, GBT and it's, it's dreadful. Um, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's pretty awful. I, I don't, I can't imagine it. Um, if it generates a novel, you'll have to spend uh, so much time revising it, and it's probably going to be really predictable, tropey crap. Um, if we get to the point where the robots are creating our stories for us, I don't know, man. I, I hope we don't get there. I really hope we don't get there. That's alarming. As far as the industry, it's in a strange place. Artists, artists are rarely valued as much as they need to be, and I'm not saying that because... I need to be honored and worshipped. I'm just thinking about all the talented people I've seen who don't have a large enough book contract or the brilliant artists I know, uh, and I'm talking about uh, people drawing things who, who can't find uh, steady work, even, even though their art is beautiful. Uh, I wish our culture valued it a little bit more and paid these people as well as teachers um, more what they are actually worth and valued it. We certainly love the entertainment. Um, and I am afraid that it's getting crushed by the corporations who just want to, um, just want to drain as much money out of the art producers as they can. And I mean, we see that with, uh, with the writer's strike and the way those writers are being treated. So, I mean, I worry. I'm in a much more fortunate place than than many writers, uh, and I don't know what the future is going to be like. Uh, I didn't see this chat GBT thing coming, 
I, I didn't see this AI thing coming to be perfectly honest. I mean, since I was a little kid, I've been seeing uh, shows on television. And I've been seeing movies where, hey, isn't it a bad idea to try and develop artificial intelligence? Don't we need some kind of like, you know, the famous three ro laws of robotics like hammered in? How come we haven't figured this out? Haven't we been talking about this for, you know, 70 years and now suddenly we're here developing AI and we're only now worrying about safeguards? It's like, man, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to try to change your mind a little bit on the AI because I write, I write this and it kind of freaks, it makes me excited, but it freaks it, me out a little bit. So Sean Thomas writes this piece for The Spectator called AI is the End of Writing. The computers will soon be here to do it better. And his example is this amazing prompt someone put in. All right, so he he was asking, please write me a poem about the Transformer neural networks in the style of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Try very, very hard. It's kind of scary. I'm just, I don't know if I'll read all four of these, but I'll read the first set. Here it goes. Unless you want to read it. Would you like to read it, Mr. Uh, Jones, if you can see it? <laughs> just call me Howard. Write a poem about transformer neural networks in the style of Pose the Raven. Try very, very hard. Okay. Here so, go for yeah, it. Go ahead. No, no. You, you oh, want okay, me? okay, I can do it. I was going to let you do it. With no, your... no, I'll do it. So once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, or a sea of data churning, what neural networks might be learning. Sudden from my monitor, there came a curious dancing line, as of pixels etched in phosphor, flickering with hints sublime. That does, that's not a full rhyme. Deep learning, I muttered, pondering. How will I AI divine? When emerging from the chatter, an eerie voice did chatter. Seek not to know what neural net abstracts within its chamber, for it feeds on data gory, morphing forms and changing story, rending order into riot, now a jester, now Lenore, ensnaring minds and dubious factoids, a tangled spurious lore. Quoth the net, the truth is boring. And uh, Yeah, no, that, that's just a sample. But they, it's pretty good. They got like the whole poem and you're like yeah it's got issues obviously it's not well here's, here's not, the thing yeah there's, there's always issues and i have seen individual paragraphs that are that are clever or kind of uh promising but what i i, I cannot imagine that you can generate a coherent novel um from one of these things without spending a whole lot of time editing it into shape and if you're going to do that why not just write one yourself instead of leaning on a robot I mean, are, is a robot going to be able to create uh, uh, deep nuance, uh, surprising character arcs, uh, a mystery that makes sense, that is well-motivated? I just, man, I hope we don't get to that point. I can't imagine our creatives being put out of work by the robots. Um, but who knows? That's the, that's the big question, though. It's like um, this tech, are we in the are we beginnings of something that's going to become like that, that powerful that creative and keep in mind that it doesn't actually need to be as good as a creative is now it just needs to be okay enough and cheaper like that that like that's what look basically the writer's strike one of the big points the two big points that can't get seem to get through is one writer's room because the companies just they just don't need as many writers we're only doing 10 episodes five episodes now instead of 23 you just don't need as many people but the other thing is ai and this is so interesting because this is something that the people the writers keep pushing their things the and i agree with the writers killing this they're saying, look, if you're going to do work and you're going to write in the style of me, I want you to get my permission. Or how about just don't do it? Like, just don't don't try to like, you know, try to use me to force me out one day. But the studios, interestingly enough, I think they do believe that it, AI will be eventually beginning to that point where it could 
I mean, we're already in news. I get you know lots of people who have lost jobs or they they've been reassigned basically to be an editor, and they're basically have a, a bunch of prompts going in. Like they have a press feed, and then they'll have a system. It's not ChatGPT. It's these other um, boutique companies. And then they'll work on what basically what gets fed out in the press release, and then they'll regurgitate that into an article. And you're like, well, the quality isn't quite there, but the companies like CNN are like, well, how many people are really reading our articles anyways? <laughs> like everyone just reads the headline if they read it at all. And it's so that's, that's it's, so dreadful. it just beca- yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a job of basically AI herding. You're like, I'm an editor, and I I rewrite twenty AI you know articles a day, and that's now my job. Well, it's awful. I, you know, I see. Um, so I've been watching my wife uh, play Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, and while she's playing, sometimes she has me look up uh, hints when she really gets stuck. And I didn't used to see this when we played Breath of the Wild. I'd look up hints, and you know, they were articulate or they were poorly written, but you could tell they were written by a human. The stuff that's written by an AI to a prompt, you can tell immediately. There's a whole bunch of just filler words. It's like I don't know a ninth grader writing an essay test. You know, someone does a prompt and is like. Uh, Zelda is a game that is played on a, on a computer. Uh, blah 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 blah. It lists all these things. Like, man, just get to the meat of it. I need the information. It's just, ugh, I, I hate that. And to think that we're going to get more and more actual news that sounds like that, I'm going to weep. I'll probably read even less news then. It, it's tough. I mean, I I did an article with Clownfish TV. We interviewed the guy, the CEO of um. Big freaking robot. He also founded Cinema Plan, both very successful sites in their own areas. And he's like, look, basically the problem is right now is that news is dying because there's no way to make a profit. And it doesn't really have to do with how many readers necessarily. It's because news made this this Faustian bargain in the late 90s that they would, instead of doing the advertising themselves and getting the people to come to them, they would just hand it over to other websites. So Google being the first big one, which is still the biggest with AdSense, but also, you know, places like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. And what happened was, and this won't surprise you because you're, you're an author and you know how this, how that business works. Eventually these companies, when they figure out that, that you aren't indispensable and that you can't be replaced for like a lot less, they're like, oh, oh, you know, they're like, oh, there's a lot of money here and I don't have to deal with the POS people. And they're right. like, okay, that sounds good. I like this. And that's kind of what happened where like Google's like, we don't need the news people. We'll just regurgitate this information ourselves. And of course that means the results we are getting is, is worse, but in their minds, it's probably like this, this, the, the cost benefit analysis here is even though the cost, the, 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 the quality goes down, if we still get enough people to show up, it, it's, it's better for us. And I think that's, that's happening to a lot of things. I think it's happening in writing. It's happening in news. Uh, and no, it's frustrating. It makes me sad because I'm like I'm like you. I'm not as well versed in um fan in classic fantasy literature, but you know I've read Mislasny. I like that kind of stuff too. And it's like, are we are we just gonna get to the point where that was a thing of the past, or we're powered the golden age, and now it's Amazon eBooks and and ChatGPT made uh, dwarf and elf uh, mystery novels from here on out. <laughs> you know, and if you're into dwarfing. And- uh, elf mystery novels, you know, if that's what floats your boat, go for it, man. I just didn't want to see it in my adventure fiction, but I really don't think I want to read any of those written by a robot. Thanks. Oh, they'd be, I think they'd be wonderful in their, in their clunkiness. Yeah. And be, <laughs> and be um, ironic reading. You know, you have oh, you had the experience where you read something that is so, it's just so bad. It's actually kind of, it's just interesting. 
Like it's so bad, it holds your attention. You're like, wow. You know what? I've read Slush for two magazines now, and no, I, I don't want to do that ever again. I have I have limited time and a huge to be read pile, so no, I don't. I don't. okay. <laughs> I it's don't it's my that. morbid curiosity speaking. I I find that kind of thing fascinating. Yeah. I, I, maybe I'm a bit of a mean person, but I do enjoy like a, an epic failure. Huh. Uh, having a few of my own to speak of. <sighs> well, uh, Howard, Andrew, Howard, Andrew Jones, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is fun. I really appreciate you sharing that book with me. I'm looking forward to your next entry, which comes out in a few months. Um, you're, a, you're a nerd's nerd. You're a great writer. You're a fun guy. You have appreciation for the classics. So you are the perfect candidate to come on the show, and I appreciate you're willing to make the time. Um, where can people find you if they want to find you? Do you got socials? Are there places you like to frequent where people can engage you at? Sure. You could find me on the platform formerly known as Twitter at, at Howard Andrew John. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, and I'm I'm on Facebook a little bit more regularly than Twitter uh, at HowardAndrewJones.1, I think it is. If you search for the Howard Andrew Jones who's talking about um, fantasy books and old adventure stories, that's the right one. And I do maintain a website, although I'm so busy writing Hanavar, I don't really update it very much. It's, so that's HowardAndrewJones.com. And I will be at DragonCon this year in Atlanta, and I will be at Archon in St. Louis uh, a little bit later in the year. Yeah, DragonCon. That's a big one. I think most of the authors I've spoken with on the show are, are go to that. That's like a it's like a big, you know, that's like a big writer's event. That's where all the right fancy writers like to hang out, DragonCon. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's pretty nifty. I always attend that. Uh, well, I don't always attend. I always attend the Gen Con Writers Symposium. I would like to get to Dragon Con more often, but it's a longer drive. Um, but a lot of people always attend that one because it's huge. It's, it's about the size of a Comic Con. It's probably larger than many Comic Cons. It's, it's, it's immense. It's a little overwhelming, but this time I'm going to be surrounded by all of the wonderful Bane staff and fellow Bane writers. So it's not going to be nearly as overwhelming. Excellent. That that will it. be a lot of fun. I, I'm happy for you. You should probably enjoy that. Yeah, it's it surprises you when you go to something like that. You realize like, wow, there are actually a lot of humans that like this kind of thing. It's not just me. It's not just me and my small group of friends. There's actually like a lot of people consuming these these novels and stories and stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. It's delightful. And you know what? I don't I don't see any robots wandering around creating art there either. And so that's good. Don't don't give them any ideas. Don't. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Like I'm afraid some executives could listen to this podcast. But like that was a good idea. We should try that. But what I don't want to see are those those creepy robot dog things. You know them wandering. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That would that would be fun. That, yeah. They'd be they'd start out being ironic, but then eventually it'd yeah. be real. It'd be like yeah. a Dragon Con, but the police state. It'd be great. Okay, well, we're on that stupid note. We're at the end of the year, guys. Thank you so much for watching and listening to Culturescape, uh, the show that in interviews the geeks and creators that influence nerd culture. Um, great appreciation for Bane Books Publishing, uh, imprint of Simon Schuster, who helped put together the show. This was a Sean Korsgaard, wonderful guy. Really appreciate his help. Um, thank you again to Young Voices, who also helped put together the program. And, of course, my editor, Chris Holowicki, who makes me look so much more competent. Uh, than I actually am. Thank you once again, Chris. You are awesome. And to all our friends here, our listeners and viewers, until next time, please keep geeking out. Bye.